Sharon, my wife, said, Aberdeen. <laughs> And welcome to the Sound of Football podcast. I'm Graham Sibley, and as ever, I'm joined by Terry DeFellon. Hello. Hello, Terry. I'm quite happy today. I mean, I've got a bit of a hangover, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Did you celebrate exuberantly in an exuberant fashion after Arsenal's, um, dare I say, somewhat jammy 3 1 win? <laughs> <laughs> jammy? Jammy? How dare you? Jammy. Yeah, jammy. Lots and lots of jam on that one. Are you saying that Liverpool's goal wasn't heaped with jam? I'd say there was jam all round. <laughs> but there was more jam on Arsenal's side, the loaf, than there was on Liverpool's, if I can torture this metaphor a little bit longer. Look, I'll go and have a look at the jam stats later on, OK? We can discuss jam <laughs> and the finer details of jam later on. However... Yeah, just don't look at the headline stats. Just look at the underlying jam stats. And I reckon you'll find there's... Plenty of jam going on there. We're not a home to expected jam around here, okay? <laughs> the important thing is the actual jam. Yeah. That's the important stat. That's the one that's most important is the one on your screen. And that's the actual jam. <laughs> uh, no, I thought that they... I thought, obviously, I thought Arsenal played really, really well. Of course, of course, they deserved to win. But, you know, those goals were jamming. <laughs> well... That's your opinion. In my opinion, they were fantastic goals. And maybe I was just a bit dizzified by the whole uh, tracking shot that Sky has. Uh, only the Emirates. I only see them do this at the Emirates. Yeah, it's probably a bit of seasickness as well that probably made my celebration a bit more uh, exuberant. Did you watch it in uh, getting down with the kids' game mode, or did you watch? Yeah, it I watched in it in game mode. I'm always up for it. Yeah, I'm up for it. whenever there's a new innovation. Like I was, <laughs> oh yeah, I watched that, and I watched it in game mode. I watched it because it's the second or third one they've done it in game mode. And yeah, I think the, the Emirates because I think it's the only stadium that's probably just got that the ability to accommodate that tracker yeah. that they need for the camera. So yeah, that's probably why they do it. Yeah, I was watching it, and there was one point in the first half where. Arsenal broke from uh, the Arsenal penalty area, broke out really quickly. It got to Martinelli, who went off like a train down the left wing. And it was trying to keep up with Martinelli all the way to the Liverpool goal. But the camera was still catching up by the time that Saka got shot off target uh, at the end of it. So still a few teething problems, I think, to sort out on that tech. But I think the only thing I've got against game mode is actually the name game mode. Mm. it's probably my age showing there but obviously know why they've done that it's because you know they think they're getting in with the kids and saying hello fellow young people <laughs> would you like to watch it in game mode why don't you just say look in tracking mode or something like that just yep. to say what it is because otherwise in game mode i'm going to be able to say well where can i change my camera angles where can i press the button to do the uh, goal celebrations the over goal celebration please <laughs> Excessive goal celebrations, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I agree with you. I like it and I like watching it. And again, I enjoy these kind of innovations. But objectively, I'm not really entirely certain what they're hoping to achieve with this. I don't know whether or not they're going to get more subscribers because of it. And they're appealing to a, a market that notoriously doesn't have any money. And at the moment, at least at this stage, tends to favour 
shorter clip styles. I'm not suggesting that this is what young people are and they'll grow up and they'll only be able to watch football in 30 second bursts. But I'm suggesting right now is that that's what they will do. They're, my personal view is, is that as you get older, your habits change. So it's likely that they might well end up being happy to sit down and watch. But if you're trying to cash in on a younger generation who you know have different habits, and I'm not entirely certain that game mode really helps. But anyway, it's always fun to see these kind of things happen and how they work out. And sometimes they're good things and sometimes they're not so good. There's that camera that uh, increasingly uh, clubs use, and I can never remember the name of it, but it's sort of like a megalopolis camera or something like that. I've completely <laughs> forgot what it's called. But it's that really super ultra high definition one that has that different depth of vision. And they usually use it for on-pitch stuff. Mm. And uh, it was on La Liga TV, but the Bundesliga have been using it now. And I think that you can see it here as well. And stuff like that. And it's really quite different. A little bit jarring, but I really like, I do like that kind of stuff. I'm interested in, in that. And I'm in favour of broadcasters you know, monkeying with the technology a bit and trying to do something different. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, well, then let's not over-celebrate too much if it were turns out to be a success. Yeah, let's try and stay even keeled, eh, Graham? What do you reckon? <laughs> try even-tempered and even-emotional about the whole thing. No, no, Terry. We've got to be <laughs> exuberant. Look, those socials aren't going to populate themselves, are they? They are not, no. So, no. you know, you, you need to give the social media team a lot because they've got a whole week ahead of us before the next game and you know totally they need and they need that content and the players understand that that is what people like they love it and they either love it because they actually genuinely like it because they're arsenal fans or they love it because they're not arsenal fans and they can complain about it either way they're happy it's content or discontent indeed <laughs> content you diss well there was an awful lot of dissing that particular content wasn't there well yeah it was Odegaard, wasn't it? Odegaard and the camera. And he was like, look at me, I've got a camera. And I'm having, and I'm having fun with a camera. <laughs> well, he was having fun with a cameraman, the official Arsenal photographer. So I think there's more to the story. But yes, he was taking pictures of the uh, Arsenal photographer on the pitch at the end of the game. Two colleagues enjoying themselves and having fun. Two I mean, colleagues. like, oh my God. And, and Sky was managing to get this from a number of angles. So they had at least four cameras on him doing this. So they obviously thought it was good content as well. Yeah, but not everyone does. Not a lot, some people are against that sort of thing. Yeah, well, get used to it. That's what I'd say. Absolutely. Or just yeah. get used to complaining about it. Yes, either works. Whatever floats your boat, really, I think. Of course, my weekend was happy. Your weekend, not so much, was it? No, my weekend was atrocious from a football point of view. <laughs> mm, yeah. Palace not only lost, but they perhaps have lost one of their best players to injury, so it seems. Or yes. this is what the main fear was. They thought he wasn't fit enough. Then they brought him on mm. for, I think, the sum total of eight minutes. It's Michael Elise, yes. wasn't it? Well, you'll know more of the story than, than I will, so maybe you want to expand on it. Yeah, Michael Elise was not fit, and there were concerns that he wouldn't be fit. And Palace were 3-0 down, and they were never going to win this game. And Roy Hodgson took the decision to take a chance and put him on, and he lasted eight minutes, and then he was down. And at this point, although I must confess I've not checked, but at this point I don't know what the prognosis is for Elise. But if he's lost for a good portion of the season, then it will turn out to be, I would suggest, a costly error of judgment, I think, on, on Roy Hodgson's part. Yeah, terrible result, obviously. Worst defeat to the Seagulls since 1950-something. Yeah. And it uh, has to go down as one of the worst results in the club's history, I'm afraid. And, and that is not hyperbole. I think if you if you lose 
4-1 to your closest and fiercest rivals with that kind of margin and after that length of time of not having lost that badly. I mean, we've lost them before. We lost 3 nil to them once under Ian Holloway. And Holloway didn't get it. He didn't realise there was a whole thing. And he, he found out pretty quickly afterwards that that was not the kind of game you want to lose. And then there was some redemption as well because we went on to win the playoffs and beat Brighton in the playoffs. That was the famous Poogate. Um, but this has got to be the worst, one of the worst results in the club's history. And, you know, it, it therefore kind of the expectation is, is that something must be done afterwards. But it's, it's becoming apparent that nobody really knows what it is that needs to be done. Well, partly we know what needs to be done, but it's the other part that's the problem. Well, yeah, the newspapers have been filled since that game with reports that Steve Parrish is ready to sack Roy Hodgson. But. but yes, but <laughs> nothing's happened so far. I mean, obviously, we shut ourselves off from the football world while we're in here recording. Yeah, oh, I've got flash scores open, but that's, that's not going to tell me if Roy Hodgson's been sacked, is it? Yeah, I mean, Terry is looking at his phone right now. I'm <laughs> looking at my phone. I spent the whole day picking up my phone roughly every quarter of an hour to see if I've got an update from a well-known news website that I subscribe to. And no, not so far. I'm expecting it. But the issue apparently is, and this is even worse, is that Palace have a short list of coaches that they would like as their next coach. It was The Guardian who reported that apparently none of them are too keen on taking up the reins at this point in the season. And you can't blame them. I and mean, there's a long way to go. And probably lost one of the best players. And, you know, it's going to be an uphill struggle to stay in the division, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's the kind of thing you can go along to. You could go, take up. Let's say Steve Cooper, for example, was to take that up. And if it all backfires on him, he gets relegated, probably gets fired at the end of the season or worse, <laughs> ends up having to manage in the championship again. Then it's like you can understand why... You wouldn't take that job. And I think the same goes for Potter. Well, I wouldn't want to see Potter as the coach. I've discussed the reasons why in the past. Uh, but any of them, really. I mean, like Lopetegui is a name who's repeatedly been mentioned. I've not, we've, whenever we've talked about this, I've never really mentioned Lopetegui because even though his name is in the frame, I just think after what happened at Wolves, where he left in the summer because they weren't going to give him any money, was, well, well that's not going to be any different in this summer unless there's a breakthrough at boardroom level and, and money you know, money is spent on, on recruitment, then I don't really see how we would attract established top-line coaches like Lopetegui, who it's surprising to me that he's still out of work. So, yeah, it's a bit of a grim and chaotic situation at the moment. And it's unpleasant because, as I've repeatedly said, I've got a lot of time for Roy Hodgson. But I do feel that, unfortunately, you know, I mean, you think he's, he's made too many mistakes and he's broken off his relationship with the fans. I just don't see any kind of immediate future for him. And I think the only reason why he's still there and will stay there is because they can't find anybody to replace him, hmm. which is really grim. That That is grim. Now, they don't play again until this time next week. Next Monday is Palace's next fixture. And that's against Chelsea. Chelsea, who themselves are looking likely that they're going to sack Maurizio Pochettino. Or are they? I don't know. He's taken them to Wembley at the end of this month, supposedly, if he's still in post, but they've conceded four goals in their last two league games. Lost to Wolves at the weekend at home. So Maurizio Pochettino, his record is, after 23 games, is worse than when they sacked Graham Potter. So Chelsea going backwards with supposedly a A-list manager 
with lot, plenty of Premier League experience, you say it's going to be difficult to replace Hodgson. How difficult will is it going to be to replace Pochettino? With an elite level coach, you would think that you'd have, you'd be on pretty thin ice as an elite level coach to go into that situation. Because the stories are is that like basically it's a, it's a nightmare recruitment situation. The dressing room is overstuffed, and Poch hasn't been able to establish any kind of dressing room harmony. And a lot of the blame is being laid at obviously Todd Burley's door because of his recruitment strategy and because there's not been sufficient due diligence. And that what they've been trying to do is they've been recruiting players in order to game financial sustainability rules rather than build a squad. I mean, even if you go back to Nottingham Forest last season and the massive amount of recruitment they did, that worked because I think the purpose of, of it was in large part to build a squad capable of surviving in the Premier League and, and actually succeeded. Whereas, you know, that, I don't think that's what Todd Burley's done. I just think he's just trying, he thinks he's being cute, he thinks he's being clever and thinks he knows how to do this, you know, you know well before he actually learned anything. And, you know, we're seeing, I think we're seeing the consequences of that. So who would... What coach with any kind of reputation, what elite level coach, assuming that there are any in the market right now, would want that job? And what it points to, Graham, is that Chelsea are no longer an elite club. That's what it says to me. They are basically a mid-table side that likes to spend money, but likes to spend money in a sort of 1970s trolley dash type of way. Totally. We're old enough to remember those kind of clubs that did that. Crystal Palace did it once in their history, spent under Malcolm Allison, spent a ridiculous amount of money without really any kind of focus. And that's what seems to be happening here. And it's extraordinary how a club can, up to this point, be you know well run. I mean, obviously problematic under Roman Abramovich, but the money that of his that they spent was well spent on good players and good squads, and they won stuff. Um, and they were feared. But now you look at them and you're right, they just look like a bloated mid-table team who are just like signing too many players that they don't need um, and don't probably necessarily have the right amount of experience and right blend of experience to compete in the Premier League. And it's still become rapidly becoming something of a joke. And well, as well, that what they've got is they've got a lot of a lot of very expensive players on very long, very expensive contracts who they will not be able to get rid of. There'll be no getting rid of some of these players they've got. No one will spend the money. It really is relying on transfer markets and wage markets to increase as well. It's like they've overspent on property, haven't they? And waiting for the market to catch up with them. And it's not going to. So they could be in some real, real trouble, couldn't they? Yeah. Uh, If a new coach comes in and says, well, we need to get rid of him, him, him and him, I mean, this is the players that I want in. They're just going to say, well, we can't actually do that for reasons that you've just said. I think that their situation is not as perilous as Palace's because I don't think Chelsea are going to be relegated. But failing to qualify for the Champions League, I think, is quite realistic, obviously. And, and you know, that in itself is a form of relegation for a club like Chelsea because I assume that a lot of the projections are, are based upon playing in the Champions League. And... You know, even before all of this, Chelsea did not have a divine right to that competition because, you know, there's a, a number of clubs now that have risen to the point where they are eligible for Champions League qualification because they're good. You know, clubs like Newcastle who have recruited quite well and have got quite a lot of money, but also Tottenham who have, are going through something of, of a renaissance under under a, the, an inspirational coach. So it's ridiculously competitive up there right now. And Chelsea suddenly find themselves at the fag end of the title race slash 
Champions League qualification equation. And, and it could really be, as you say, disastrous for them in the longer term. And with the prospect of yet another final against Liverpool coming up, that they'll lose. That they'll lose, yeah. Being their best chance of getting into Europe as well, because uh, it's not just Champions League, it's all European qualification, yeah. really. And also, if they can qualify for the Europa League, but then that completely throws out their season as well, because like... You know, Liverpool will tell you, like, playing on a Thursday and a Sunday is, like, seriously suboptimal. And it's all bad news, I think, for Chelsea. They look, for all the world, like it could go really badly wrong. They're kind of, like, grinning at it. But, I mean, it would be fairly seismic, wouldn't it, if it happened? So I suppose we'll know next Monday, whoever loses that game is going to be the favourite to go, isn't it? If both of them are in charge. Assuming that they're still there. Yeah. I think Hodgson will still be at Crystal Palace because I think that the club is just simply paralysed. It can't make a decision. There's massive problems. I think the reports are that there's a, there's a disconnect at the boardroom level. Steve Parrish is the chairman, but he's also the minority stakeholder. John Textor has a 45% stake and he wants to spend money on recruitment. But even then, that's problematic because John Textor, you know, the owner of Lyon, who has had a disastrous opening spell as owner of Lyon. And then you've got the other two guys, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who have literally just bought the Washington Commanders and presumably are not that interested in what's going on at Crystal Palace. They're probably more worried about maybe protecting their investment. I think they'll be concerned if the club gets relegated. But I mean, they, I would think they're focused on reviving you know, a very storied NFL franchise rather than anything that Crystal Palace are doing. And so it's really difficult. Um, and with Chelsea, yeah, again, Todd Burley might well in a fit of peak sack Pochettino, but does that mean he's got a strategy for a replacement coach? Who would that coach you? Will it be Mourinho again? Will he come back? It's really difficult to know. I can see him coming in there on an interim basis, uh, having yeah. just been relieved of his duties at Roma. Um, but yeah, listeners, if you don't know what's happening at, at Leon, uh, Leon. Well, they did look like they were going to go down. They looked like they were getting relegated this season. Um, they've actually pulled out of the relegation zone now on goal difference, I think. Um, and there are teams down there like Mets who are just in a terrible situation at the moment. They, they just keep losing. Uh, so I think they've probably got enough, but they're a long way off escaping the relegation zone in France. Um, but yeah, that, that's looking perilous down there. Uh, of course, for Palace, I mean, look, yeah, Chelsea have got Mourinho there as their possible backup. But Palace lost one of their backups just today. Neil Warnock took a job at 75. He's taken an interim job at Aberdeen. At Aberdeen. I know. That's wild. <laughs> I don't understand it personally. How do you understand people who are so driven by their work, that they're prepared to eat into their retirement, eat into their dotage with work. It is genuinely baffling. But then, I mean, I, I've never, I've never, I've never bought into that theory that uh, if you uh, do the thing you love, you'll never work work a day in your life. I think that's nonsense because work <laughs> is still work. But I suppose being a football manager and working in professional football is one of those sort of like outlier industries which in which you know you work in and you just can't get enough of. And that's I think Hodgson's problem is that he's not realized that he should have quit. <laughs> and Warnock, I don't know. Well obviously I've got no idea what the situation is up in Scotland whatsoever. It's good to see. I think there was a I read a quote of him saying he'd always wanted to manage in Scotland and well, now he's got his chance. <laughs> he's got a chance. Good luck, Neil. Do you think he actually realises just how far away it is? 
I doubt it. <laughs> he probably thinks that where's he from? He's from Yorkshire, isn't he? Yeah. So he probably thinks that that's like proper north, and he hasn't got a clue. <laughs> I tell you what, though, Graham Aberdeen. Just a slight answer. I've all, I've all, I haven't. That's a complete lie. I haven't always wanted to go to Aberdeen, but I have recently felt that Aberdeen would be a good football weekend trip. All right, it's a, it's going to be bracing up there, and it's a long way from where we are. But but <laughs> but it's the stadium looks great. It's right on the sea. I reckon there could be fun and larks up in Aberdeen. I reckon it's a good place to go for a football weekend. And, uh, and I'd love to take the trip there and check it out for myself. Yeah, maybe we should do that. I think the only thing I know about it is that it, it's, it's actually a bit um, a bit pricey up there because um, it's it's very oil rich as well with the oil people. Yeah, because there's, there's money up there, isn't there? There is yeah, loads of say. money up yeah. there. So all, all the gas and oil people, they, they hang out there. It's a shame that they've not been able to coax up a bit more investment and bring some money into that club really isn't it i mean well maybe they have maybe it is actually inflated again don't shoot me down it's got the bands. i don't know i yeah. don't know it's got <laughs> yeah. to people yeah. but i mean i you would have thought that that, that would have been a good spot for a, a bit of an investment for a you know a slightly hokey maybe sort of ill-judged uh, billionaire to come in and and sort out but uh, but i suppose that's maybe the problem is because obviously scottish football is perceives to be somewhat somewhat weak and, mm. and lacking in a competitive edge but yes. again that can be argued of course it can yeah so warnock's there till we presume the end of the season in his interim role to see if he can get aberdeen out of the bottom half before the uh, the season splits which i mean that that would be quite embarrassing for a club like aberdeen that would be seen to be one of the main competitors to the big two there yeah, absolutely, and I, I mean, again, I, I, with, I'm embarrassed to say that I wasn't aware that Aberdeen had fallen that far. I mean, I know that they can be a lumpy club, despite the fact that they're, as you say, they're sort of historically the third place team behind the old firm. But again, even that's contentious because there'll be people in Edinburgh saying, "Well, hang on a second. So you know, but yeah, I hope that he turns that round. And I know he's been a somewhat prickly character over the years, but I think he's not the kind of guy you know that you can stay angry with for too long. Think I yeah. don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. If he came back to Palace for a third spell, I think you'd soon <laughs> quickly get angry. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I'm saying that now because he's not coming back to Palace because he took. He's, 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 maybe that's maybe that's what's happened. Is actually Parish is withholding sacking uh, Hodgson just in case he ends up hiring Warnock by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, what what are you doing? What what? Oh what no, I've done it again. <laughs> I, I was talking to him on a phone, and then and then what happened was uh, Neil said, "Yeah, sure, I'll start Monday morning." And I didn't have the art to tell him that. <laughs> I am convinced that that is how at least one third of Crystal Palace managers have been hired. Is that they've hired themselves, and Steve Parrish is too nice a bloke. I say, oh no, no, that's not what I meant, mate. No, you know. Uh, I I don't uh, know how Steve Parrish actually talks, but I think that's how I assume he talks. I think we've captured the essence. <laughs> yeah, Steve Parrish is from advertising. He'll have, he far, he'll have far more West London accent, won't he? But he's not, but yeah, but he's not. There's there's, a, there's there's no hint of any of that in, in him at all. I mean, he's proper Croydon, and and he's a bit. Yeah, I mean, he's 
clearly somebody who hasn't actually had much of a public facing role up to that point. He's probably, he's just, yeah, he's a, he's a creative guy. I mean, I think this whole thing is tragic because I think Palace fans have got to, a lot to be grateful for Steve Parrish, for how he was able to bring the club out of administration and get the club into the Premier League. And I think it's really, I think part of what's so sad about this is that the, the animosity that is felt, you know, but one towards Hodgson, who's done great things for the clubs, but also towards Parrish. You know, and I think that that's what the worst aspect of it is that, that hitherto good people are now at odds with the club's supporters, or at least a, a significant portion of them. And that's that's really, really sad. And, and I think it's, it's absolutely vital. You know, obviously relegation to the championship would be a tragedy, and particularly for the people closest to the club and people who, who work at the club who would lose their jobs. That goes without saying. But really, for me, it's more important that we repair these relationships as, as, as it is that we stay in the Premier League. You know, maintain the integrity and character of the club. Hmm. Well said. Uh, well, let's get off the subject of sacking managers and replacing them with someone completely hopeless. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about something even worse. Let's talk about VAR for a second. Oh, God. And this is a story we actually missed last week. Well, we were too busy talking about Klopp. We, we were lost in Klopp last week, weren't we? We were indeed, yeah, we were. But there was another very important story around from Belgium. Yes, I know not many important stories come from Belgium, but uh, this one did. This one did. And so when it did finally fall into my lap, I thought, yes, we should talk about this on the podcast. Because this is from the Jupiler Pro League, the top flyer in Belgium. And a match has been ordered to be replayed because of an error by VAR. A penalty decision, isn't it? Well, it wasn't actually the penalty decision. It was the penalty kick whatever the Belgian equivalent of the PGMOL has come out and said, yeah, yeah, significant human error was to blame for the decision going wrong. And they've ordered the game to be replayed. Well, okay. So what do we think of that then? VAR cocked up again, and it had match-affecting results. But should we just get on with it? or Because now this does set a precedent, doesn't it? Definitely. Most people are going to say, where's our replay? When we talked back in October about Liverpool's defeat against Tottenham, and there was quite heated talk about the game should be replayed because of the importance of the cock-up that was made. What do you think? That game should not be replayed. Yeah, I don't think you can replay football matches on the basis of incorrect decisions by referees. That is a matter of principle. The thing is now is that we now we proceed with football on the basis that because we have VAR, referees no longer make mistakes. Because if they're on-field referee makes a mistake, then the off-field referee in the VAR booth will correct that mistake. So that idea of, you know, referee fallibility as a matter of principle seems to have been broken. If you go and watch any other game and the referee makes a mistake of that nature, then unfortunately it's tough. You've got to go on with it. You know, you can heap some abuse on the referee at the end of the game if you want to, if you think it will make you feel better, make you feel like a bigger man for doing so, fair enough. You know, ultimately the result stands and, and the referee's decision is final. And then if it's the incorrect one, it's just tough titty. And I think that this seems to indicate that actually there's no such thing as referee fallibility. The referees can't make mistakes. And if, when they do make mistakes, the game has to be replayed. I will repeat what I have said in the past, is that when you decide the outcome of a football match of any sporting competition after they've stopped playing then it's no longer a sport. This is not quite the same because 
the result hasn't yet to be determined. It's going to be determined by a replay. But it is effectively rendering a, a game null and void because of an in-game incident that's taken place, effectively on the field. I know that the decision was taken off the field, but you you, you take my meaning. Yeah. It is not like, you know, there's been maybe match fixing or, you know, there was a the floodlight failures and, and I'm not talking about stuff like that. I'm talking about something happens that is a, as a consequence incidental to the actual playing of a football match. A referee has made a mistake and then another referee has made the same mistake. This is very, very sad. Some may be regarded as a misfortune. <laughs> Others seems more like carelessness. But ultimately, that's just the way it is. So, yeah, I think that's a significant decision. And you know, I think you're right, Graham. I think the worry is, is that then there will be precedent. And they'll say, well, look, they did this in Belgium. So if they can do it in Belgium, then they can do it here. And I wait with interest to the next game where there is a contentious decision, a mistake that is made by the... Cause it, and it will happen in England, because England. And we'll wait and see what happens next, what the club does. Let's say it's, let's say it's Liverpool again. But it could be any club, and they say, "Well, right, or well, we we're going to write to the PGA World we'll ask for that and we are going to suggest that the game be replayed." Yeah, where will it end, Graham? Well, it will end with games being played the following season. So, yes, this is uh, this is last season's FA Cup semi final being replayed. We'll have to replay the final as well because of the decision that was overturned by Cass using the Andelect versus Genk defence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where it will go because. All right, that, that's a very, very extreme example of what could happen. But there are examples of games that have gone on to be replayed. There have been a couple of ghost goal games that have ended up being replayed. But I know yeah. plenty of other games where ghost goals have gone in and those things haven't happened. No, absolutely. And I think it's because people know that this is a, a dangerous direction to take the game. Obviously, this is a specific set of circumstances. Um, and it's possible that it might be in the future that appeals to replay games will be turned down and say, well, look, this is a specific set of circumstances different to what you're arguing for, like, for example, disallowing a goal for offside, for example. Yeah. But again, once you've opened that crack in the door, the worry is, is it comes through again. And I, I just feel that as a matter of principle to protect the integrity of the game, you just have to abide by referees' decisions, whether they are on the pitch or whether or not they are off the pitch. I, mean, I can only imagine what kind of pressure referees must be under now because to understand that if they make mistakes now, when I mean, there's been very little protection for referees when they have made mistakes, but there's even less now because you know, you're getting to the point where you know their mistakes are, getting, are, are resulting in massive upheaval, like games being replayed, whole games being replayed, you know opening up the tickets barriers once again, firing up the grills, you know, or, or doing going through the whole business of rearranging another football match just because you've made a mistake. I, I wouldn't want to live with that kind of pressure if I'm being completely honest with you, and I don't think that it helps at all in the cause and the right cause to try and be a lot more measured and a little bit cooler about referees and, and, and decision-making and the mistakes that they make. So I think all round it's a big mistake. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We're living in a crazy world, though. I mean, the whole finances of technology in football is ridiculous. You know, the license for goal line technology per game costs twice as much as the fees for the matchday referees. Really? Yeah. That is ridiculous. That's in the FA Cup. So in the in the FA Cup fifth round, right? in stadiums where they've got goal line technology, 
The goal line technology fee is £3,000. The fees for the referee, fourth official, and the two linos is £1,500. Right. I mean, that's appalling, but it's also standard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, like, tech is just, like, everywhere. And tech is clearly, you know, has a higher value than, than human activity in certain parts of, the, of life and culture. So uh, it's not actually that surprising. I didn't know that. Mm. That's all, but it is awful. It's truly awful. And yeah, I mean, that's just like they, they, uh, these guys. They saw football coming, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they really did. <laughs> I mean, football is such a mark for this kind of nonsense. Yeah. Well, that was quite a concise moan about VAR, and uh, as well. I mean, I'll, I'll touch on this quickly. It's not just referees of VAR that are making a mockery of the way that football is run. Okay. Last week, we had an incident in the Women's League Cup where Aston Villa had played a game with an ineligible player. Uh, Noel Maritz, they'd just recently bought in the January window from Arsenal. They'd already won the group. They'd won their other five games and they beat Sunderland 7-0, I think, in the final game. But Noel Maritz came on. She's a fullback. Didn't really do much in the game. But she had played three league games in the group stage in Arsenal's completely separate group but was by the rules ineligible to play now usually in cup competitions we're used to this this has happened to Whiteleaf before if you play an ineligible player you get kicked out Mm. but there was nothing in the rules to say what would happen in this situation so it went to an independent panel and they said well actually what will happen is the game will go to Sunderland so Sunderland get the win That win meant that Sunderland finished top of the group, went through to the next stage, to the knockout stage of the League Cup. Aston Villa went through as the best losers across the groups. And Manchester United were knocked out. Interesting. So Aston Villa not only stay in the competition, but they actually knock another team out because of basically the rules not being tight enough. Or the fact that the rules surrounding being cup-tied come from an age where you didn't have league phases of cup competitions mm, indeed sounds to me like the rule is with cup type players is that if you play an ineligible player in a cup game you forfeit the match and as a consequence you're knocked out of the competition yeah. because it's a knockout competition yeah but if you are playing a cup type player in a cup game where, where you don't get knocked out for forfeiting the match then actually you get these unforeseen, well, these actually quite foreseeable consequences (laughs) of another team suffering. Now, let's not all feel that sorry for Manchester United, but, you know, that's obviously a great shame for those players. The Conti Cup is a competition that is loved and the players want to play in it and they want to win it. So, yeah, that's something that I think needs to be looked at, you would think. Yeah. Can I say that I've not ever really wrapped my head around the whole cup tied players thing i understand the principle yeah. but i don't necessarily get why it is unfair necessarily i think it comes from the idea i mean it's probably goes back all the way back to the very beginning but probably down to the fact that you can only be knocked out the competition once it still feels procedural and and yeah. bureaucratic rather than sporting. Yeah. But maybe, again, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. I think as well, it probably comes from the days before contracts as well. So when players yeah. just turned up and played for sides. Yeah, it's probably a thing to help tackle just ringers who would just turn up 
stop teams from juicing up squads with ringers. It was about five years ago they got rid of it in the European competitions. Right. But that's because they overcomplicated it so much where you've got players falling from Champions League into Europa League. Yeah. And you've yeah, got league yeah. stages in there. And so I think it was a Bamiyang that was the main reason for it to be changed because Arsenal were playing in the Europa League at the time. Aubameyang had played in the Champions League. He was bought in January, but at that stage, Dortmund had fallen from the Champions League into the Europa League. So he was ineligible for playing for Arsenal in the Europa League because they could end up playing Dortmund. Got you. That was the the weird situation they'd end up getting themselves in. And I think they took one look at it and thought, no, this is ridiculous. So, yeah. yeah. So, So maybe... You know, now that cups increasingly have league stages in, it's not just a European thing anymore. It's it. You also get it. Uh, it's the whatever the Papa John's is called nowadays. You've got it in that, and you've got it in the Conti Cup in women's football as well. So yeah, maybe that's something that needs to be looked at. These unforeseen issues that crop up from there. But no such unforeseen issues will before the games this weekend, will they, Terry? Will they? No, I don't suppose so. No, the only th- issue with the weekend's game is that there's the, the, a bit of a crossover with some tasty, tasty fixtures. I mean, yeah, we had it, it yesterday, to be fair. We had the Madrid derby, the derby d'Italia, and Lyon v Marseille all happening on Sunday evening, which must have been a tricky one for the box set master to juggle. I mean, you chose wisely. But but again, this week, we've got we've got two cracking games in, in Europe happening at the same time on Sunday evening, don't we? Title deciders. Yeah, we've got Real Madrid versus Girona on Saturday evening, 5.30 kickoff. And on the same time, exactly the same time in Germany, what is it, Terry? It's Bayern versus Bayer Leverkusen. That is possibly the, the, the Bundesliga title decider, that one. That's a massive game. Bayer Leverkusen still unbeaten, still winning. Yeah. And Bayern Munich right hot on their heels. That's a, a proper title race going on there, so it's going to be a massive game. It's huge. But so is Real versus Girona, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, I don't envy you your decision. Well, I mean, I know you've already made your decision. But, you know, <laughs> well, I, do, do, you know what, do you know what tipped it for me? The fact that the Real-Girona game is going to be on free-to-air as well. So that's on ITV4. So that's just, just, just by a hair's breadth, nipped it there. Yeah, I think that's the correct decision then, yeah. There's also the finals of the Asian Cup and of AFCON as well. That's on over the weekend. Uh, Asian Cups on Saturday three. Ooh, Ooh. yeah, yeah, but three. no one's watching it over here though. So. <laughs> no, uh, and Afcon's on Sunday night. There'll be plenty of other games as well. There's Scottish Cup. There's Women's FA Cup as well, and Aston Villa versus Man United, which you'll be covering this weekend, won't you, Terry? I will be covering that game. Yes, indeed. Yes. Where we expect blistering takes. <laughs> well, if you want to see those blistering takes, then get along to sofpodcast.com. Hit the link for the weekend box set and subscribe and it will be in your inbox on friday afternoon yeah i say friday lunchtime but some people have their lunch quite early so yeah i know i'm not that quick getting out. <laughs> yeah, yeah if you lunch at 12 then no, <laughs> no. You won't be. But, uh... safer to say friday afternoon <laughs> uh but that is all we have time for this week so from me graham sibley and from terry DeBellin, it's goodbye goodbye We 
are at Sound of Football on X, Blue Sky and Instagram. So feel free to get in touch there or head to our website, sofpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us. How was your evening? How was Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? Uh, well, I watched uh, Cape Verde in the end, so... Yeah, <laughs> I, watched, I watched AFCON in the end, so yeah. You chose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I thought I did. That'll wait for another day. It's not going anywhere, is it? It's genuinely not going anywhere. No, <laughs> no. It's like an old sock, Graham. Hmm, yes. Though really, if you do have old socks, you really should put them somewhere, shouldn't you? Yes, I suppose. I've probably given too much away there. <laughs>